if you have a Bible, uh, I want to I want to encourage you to open it up to to Luke chapter twenty two. We're going to look at uh, we're going to start in chapter 20, or twenty two verse sixty three tonight. Okay, if you have one of our Bibles, it's on page nine hundred and thirty seven. Um, we are obviously Good Friday. This is a, a special service. We're pausing in our Genesis series. Um, we looked at Luke's gospel uh, this Christmas. Uh, over that time, and uh, I thought it would be fitting for us to look at it, some more of it again during Easter, uh, at least at least for tonight. So I want to just kind of catch us up, okay, since we're jumping in uh, really midway into, uh, or not midway, like almost all the way through Luke's gospel. Just want to, where we get to tonight, uh, things that have happened leading up to this, okay? Uh, just just a few couple chapters earlier than this, the first Lord's Supper. So Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. He tells them that he's gonna um, again. He's gonna he's gonna give his life for them and uh, and for to ransom many. He he washes their feet. Um, along with that, Luke captures this uh, this this handful of verses about right after Jesus serving the disciples, they start arguing with each other about who's the greatest, okay? And then uh, during, that, during that time in the upper room together, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus sweats drops of blood, Luke, Luke uh, tells us, uh, because of what he's about to endure. And, uh, and then he's betrayed by Judas and arrested on his way uh, as they're taking him away. Peter and John follow him, or, or the disciples... Peter follows him, John follows him, that's in John's gospel, talks about that, but uh, Peter denies him three times, just like Jesus said he would, yeah, and, uh, and then here's this, in Luke 22, 37, Jesus, this is, these are Jesus' words, for I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was counted among the lawless, yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment, and our passage that we're going to look at tonight, Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 63, going into chapter 23. In this passage, we're going to see uh, Jesus counted among the lawless. We're going to see him counted among the lawless. And as we look at that tonight, we're going to see why it's so important that he fulfilled these words from the prophet Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah 53. I'd encourage you, when you go home tonight, read Isaiah 53, and it will just enrich what what um, uh, Good Friday is all about. So I want to pray, and then we're going to dig in together. Father, we are grateful that we worship a risen Savior. We are thankful to you for all that you have done to us and, th- and, and for us in Christ. We praise you that we can come and speak freely about his death tonight without shame because of what his death accomplished for us. No guilt, freedom in Christ, that we could be pronounced righteous only through him. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, that Christ would be magnified, that we would be in awe of our Savior and all that he's done, and that we would freely uh, confess our own need for our Savior and freely rejoice that we have been given that Savior. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every one of us in this room is a criminal. 
every one of us in this room is a criminal. Maybe you've never been arrested before. Maybe you don't have a, 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 you've never spent any time in jail. Maybe you don't have a record. But I guarantee that it wouldn't take much effort to find something that you've done wrong in your life. Chances are good that somebody somewhere, probably even in this room, knows that you're guilty of something. Every one of us in this room, every one of us in the world, including me, is guilty not just of one thing, but of of more things than we can keep track of. Everybody's a criminal. There's only ever been one person who's ever lived who was perfectly innocent his entire life, and he came to trade places with guilty sinners so that we could be made innocent. And tonight, as we go through this together, we're going to see this. It's actually only those who confess their own guilt and trust in Christ as their substitute who are able to share in his innocence. Every one of us is a criminal, but it's only those who confess their own guilt and trust in Christ as their substitute who are able to share in Christ's innocence. And as we go through this passage tonight, I want you to pay close attention to the difference between the many people who think that they are innocent and Jesus is guilty and the one person who knows that he is guilty and Jesus is innocent because it's only when you see that difference that you will see God's grace. You ready? We're going to jump in at Luke twenty-two, sixty-three. Jesus had already been betrayed and arrested. Now he's being held by the temple police while he was awaiting trial by the Jewish uh, leaders. Luke twenty-two, sixty-three. The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. Just in those verses right there, is there any evidence of Jesus' guilt? What evidence is there of Jesus' guilt from those verses? There is none. There is none. How about evidence for the guilt of the men who were holding him? All kinds, right? What did they do? Before he even had a trial, they blindfolded him. They beat him. They mocked him as a prophet, and they dared him to point out who it was that was actually hitting him. The things they were saying to him, they were blasphemous because Jesus is God. And they were mocking him irreverently, but they weren't the only guilty ones. So let's keep reading. Look at verse 66. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Why do we need more, any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it from ourselves, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth. The elders and the, and the chief priests and the scribes, these were all the spiritual and political leaders of the Jewish community. And the, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was essentially their, their supreme court that ruled on all the religious and the judicial, the legal, the political matters. The Sanhedrin operated under the direction of the high priest, But because the Jews were under the Roman uh, rule of of Rome at the time, the Sanhedrin also operated under the jurisdiction of the governing Roman officials. 
The court consisted of 70 uh, members, but they only needed 23 for a quorum to pass judgment on something or someone, and so they gathered who they needed, and they held a trial. They wanted to know if Jesus was the Messiah, the Messiah being uh, God's servant king, who the Old Testament prophets foretold would come and establish God's eternal kingdom and rule over all nations. But if you read Luke's gospel leading up to this point, Jesus has already made this really clear, that that's who he is. And it's clear here that no matter what he said to them, they'd already made up their mind about him. If, if, if he said that he was the Messiah, he said, you're not going to believe me. If I say, yeah, you're not going you're, you're to believe that I am. If I ask you, he says, you're not going to answer me. You won't tell me. They're not going to admit to the truth. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah, but they wanted to get him to say it so that they could charge him with blasphemy and put him to death. The temple police had mocked Jesus as a prophet, but here in verse 69, Jesus prophesied. And he prophesied truthfully concerning the things that were about to happen. In this moment, these men here, these Jewish religious leaders, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, they were acting as the supreme judges, but soon it would be a flip-flop. They're going to trade places. Jesus says the day is coming when the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God, and guess who will be the judge then? By saying this, Jesus made it clear that he was claiming not only unity with God, but equality with God, the Father, as the Son of God and the Son of Man. But when they asked him to say it plainly in verse 70, we get this phrase in English, you say it that I am. In, in the Greek, it's this expression that, that both affirms what, what, what they're asking, but keeping the responsibility on the one who's asking it. In other words, he, we, we could rephrase it this way in, in English. You know that I am what you ask. You say that I am. Are you the Messiah? Yeah, you know it. That's what Jesus is doing here. But they're quick to put the responsibility back on him in verse 71, saying that this, this claim that he was the Messiah came from his own mouth, and that's what they were looking for. That was what they were waiting to hear. Mark elaborates on this in his gospel Mark chapter 14, verse 64, in, in, this, in this same uh, 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 court here, they say, you have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him deserving death. They just claimed that God blasphemed God, and he deserved to die for it. What evidence is there of Jesus' guilt in these verses? There is none. He wasn't blaspheming because everything he said was true because he's God. He couldn't be charged with giving false testimony because he never lies, right? How about evidence for the guilt of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes? Well, they ignored his truthful testimony and they condemned an innocent man to death. But they couldn't carry out the sentence because only Rome had the authority to execute someone. So the Jewish leaders had to bring their case to the Roman official and convince him of Jesus' guilt. Look at chapter 4, Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. 
So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, where he, even, where, where he started even to hear. Now Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor over the entire region of Judea. And he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival in order to prevent any rebellion or uprising from the Jews while they were gathered together in concentrated numbers. Passover festival was one of a few festivals where Jews would come to Jerusalem. They would gather in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, and celebrate this festival. He wanted to keep the peace. But Pilate wasn't interested in their Jewish law. He's not interested about whether or not Jesus really was guilty of blasphemy And so these religious leaders, they needed to prove that Jesus was guilty, not not just against them, but actually against Rome, if they wanted Pilate to do anything about it. So they shifted their charges against Jesus from religious to political. They told Pilate that Jesus was misleading the Jewish nation and encouraging disloyalty to Rome, even though Jesus had taught the people to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. The Jewish leaders also told Pilate that Jesus opposed payment of taxes to Caesar. When we can back up just a few chapters and see these words from Jesus, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. They also told Pilate that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, which wouldn't be a big deal to Pilate on a a religious level, but do you notice what they said? He claims to be the Messiah, and then they emphasized it, a king. Now, hold on. There's only one king, and it ain't Jesus, according to Rome. It's Caesar. So Pilate turned to Jesus, and he asked him outright if he was the king of the Jews, and Jesus answered him the same way that he answered the Jewish leaders. You know I am. You say so. You already know the answer. Pilate did not see Jesus as a political threat uh, that the Jews were making him appear to be. And so he told them, there's no, there's no evidence here. There's, no, there's nothing legal that we can hold him on. There's nothing to back up the charges that you have made against him. But they kept insisting that their accusations were valid. Notice the irony in verses 4 and 5. The elders and the chief priests and the scribes accused Jesus of stirring up the people, but now it's them they are the ones that are, that are drawing the crowd here. And this crowd's only going to get bigger and more unruly as we go on. What evidence is there of Jesus' guilt in these verses? There is none. He was anything but rebellious here. How, how about the evidence for the guilt of the religious leaders? Well, they fabricated their testimony, even though they claimed him a false testimony. They made false accusations about Jesus in order to make him appear guilty. Uh, guilty. But he also, Pilate, looking for a way out of this because he wasn't convinced that Jesus was guilty. But he also didn't want to stir the Jews into rebellion uh, himself. That's why he was there, to keep the peace, right? And so when they mentioned Galilee, Pilate saw his chance to pass the buck. Look at verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. 
Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. And so he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing, accusing him. Then Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt. They mocked him and dressed him in bright clothing and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. Now, Pilate was the governor of the whole region of Judea, but, but under Pilate's authority, Herod uh, specifically oversaw Galilee among a couple other areas. And Herod was also happened to be in Jerusalem at that time, so Pilate's like, okay, you told me this guy's Galilean, that's Herod's jurisdiction, so I'm just going to kick him down the road and let Herod deal with it. So he sent him to Herod, and in a situation, he leads the Jewish leaders while at the same time removing himself from the situation, or at least trying to, and the responsibility that that carries. But Herod wasn't interested in anything judicial here. He wanted to be entertained. He, he, he wanted Jesus to, to, to perform a miracle for him, but Jesus wasn't there for Herod's entertainment. So you notice when Herod asks him questions, Jesus doesn't answer them because Herod doesn't care. Meanwhile, the Jewish leaders were getting annoyed with Herod because he was, wasn't taking their accusations seriously. And so they continued to, to get angrier and angrier. And they started lobbying these accusations at Jesus, hoping that Herod would listen to them. After he realized that Jesus wasn't going to entertain him, Herod and his soldiers had a little fun. They mocked Jesus by, by dressing him up in clothing that would have been fitting for a king. Oh, you're a king, huh? All right. And then after Herod had his fun, he sent Jesus back to Pilate. What evidence is there in these verses of Jesus' guilt? There is none. He refused to perform a miracle because he was about to show people a greater sign of his divinity, his death, and his resurrection. How about evidence for the guilt of Herod and his soldiers? Well, they treated Jesus with contempt. They mocked him. They dressed him up in order to shame him. And once again, the guilt of the chief priest and the scribe is apparent through their constant barrage of false accusations against Jesus. So Pilate gained a friend out of the ordeal, but he didn't get rid of his problem. And now his problem is coming back to him. Look at verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and he said to them, You have brought me this man as one who misleads the people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will have him whipped and then release him. Then they all cried out together, Take this man away, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed him, them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! Third time they said, he said to them, Why? Why? What has this man done wrong? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept voices one out demanding with loud voices that he be crucified and their voices won out 
So Pilate decided to grant their demand and released the, the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. Notice again that the chief priests and leaders now had a crowd behind them. Who's the one that is stirring up the crowd? This crowd starts backing their assertions and their demands. It's a mob effect of sorts. In verse 14, Pilate said, You brought me this man as one who misleads the people. But we all know, right? It's super clear. It's the chief priests, it's the leaders, the ones that are accusing Jesus of the very thing that they are doing themselves. For the second time, Pilate told them that he found no grounds for charging Jesus with the things they're accusing him of, and he said that Herod even found no grounds, because if he had, he wouldn't have sent him back. He would have sent him to Egypt, or neither official, neither official, neither Roman, or neither official under Rome was convinced of Jesus' guilt, and that was a problem for the Jewish leaders, because these two unconvinced officials were the ones that had the authority to kill Jesus to put him to death. And even though Pilate was convinced that Jesus had done nothing to deserve death, Pilate didn't want to upset the people, and so he proposed what he thought was a win-win situation for him and for them. Listen, I'll have him whipped, and then I'll release him. They wanted to see Jesus punished, so he thought that would be good enough, even though he literally has said multiple times now, this man is not guilty. I'll whip him anyway just to please you, and then I'll release him. But then he would stop short of executing Jesus. That's a win for him, right? That would absolve him then in his mind of any responsibility for putting an innocent man to death. Yeah, he can take a beating. That'll be all right. But the aggression of the Jewish leaders had already spread through the crowd, and they all cried together for Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be taken away and crucified. Pilate had made it a habit of releasing a prisoner to the people every year during the festival as a gesture of goodwill. Barabbas was a notorious criminal. You remember how I said at the beginning, somebody somewhere knows you're guilty of something? Everybody everywhere knew Barabbas was guilty of everything. Even Luke says it there in parentheses for us. This guy was, was uh, an insurrectionist. He, was a re he, he rebelled. Oh, and he also murdered people. He's guilty. He's a criminal. Everybody knew he was guilty of his crimes, but the Jewish leaders had accused Jesus of inciting rebellion against Rome. But, but Barabbas uh, was the one that actually rebelled. And the crowd was so bloodthirsty for Jesus' execution that they asked Pilate to release this murderer, this obviously guilty man, and put to death the innocent one. Pilate made a plea to the people for a third and final time in verse 22. He said, why? Why, why do you want to crucify him? What has this man done wrong? I found no grounds for the sin to whip Jesus. And again, Pilate offered that he would, what he thought was the win-win option to whip Jesus and then release him, but the crowd, they would have none of it. They only had one thing on their mind. Only one thing would satisfy them, and that would be when they see Jesus hanging on a cross and their voices won out. Pilate gave in to their demand, and he let the criminal go free, and he handed Jesus over 
to their murderous will. Let's answer the question that Pilate asked. What has this man done wrong? What evidence is there of Jesus' guilt in these verses? There is none, none, murdering Jesus. And now we've seen that they put that into the minds of the people in the crowd as well. Barabbas, we, we don't need to mention anything else about him anymore. We already know he's, a, he's clearly a convicted criminal. And as much as Pilate tried to do the noble thing in his own mind, it's clear that he cared only about himself in this situation. He never declared Jesus guilty. In fact, three times he said that Jesus was actually innocent of the charges that were brought against him, and yet Pilate released Barabbas and had Jesus crucified anyway in order to keep himself in good standing with the guilty crowd. And all that back and forth, Jesus never spoke up to defend himself. But as he was on his way to be crucified, he offered words of warning to those who were following him. Look at verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon the Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country and laid a cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? These women were following Jesus and they were mourning and lamenting for him, but he told them not to. And he knew that, that even though Pilate had handed him over to the will of the people, that Jesus was ultimately accomplishing the will of his heavenly father by dying on the cross. And so he told the women, don't weep over my judgment, weep over yours. Jesus was warning the crowd of the eternal judgment to come. He already warned the Jewish leaders that he was the true judge and king. And here he was warning the people that no one would be able to escape God's judgment no matter where they tried to hide. You can drop the mountains on you. And God will find you. In wartime, women, women with children were the most vulnerable. That's why they're blessed if they don't have kids here, because war is coming. This is what Jesus is saying. And then in verse 31, he, he asked this sort of cryptic question, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? He's talking about himself as the green wood and the people as the dry wood. In other words, if the innocent one is crucified, imagine the wrath that will come upon those who are guilty. If God did not spare his own son from judgment, even though Jesus did nothing to deserve it, how much more will God bring his righteous judgment on those who do deserve it? If, if they do these things while the wood is green, just imagine what it's going to look like when the wood is dry. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. But even as he warned these people of the coming judgment, Jesus had something else in mind. What's the evidence of his guilt done? How about evidence for the guilt of the rest of the people? Jesus' own words provide grounds 
to charge them. This is God that is laying out the truth. And yet, even as he gives them this warning, what's he doing? He's on his way to provide the escape. So far in this narrative, no one who actually was guilty has admitted it. But that's all about to change. Look at verse uh, 32. Two others, criminals, who were also led away, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the plan called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, uh, along with the criminals, one on, on the right and one on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself, if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering sour wine and said, If you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him, This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things that we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In the Greek, that the English word criminal is literally translated evildoer. Evildoer. Two others evildoers were also led away to be executed with him. In this final picture, the contrast between Jesus' innocence and the people's guilt couldn't be more clear, could it? What evidence is there of Jesus' guilt in these verses? We could ask that question for a thousand years. We're not going to find anything. There is none, and there never will be because there never has been. In fact, even as they were nailing him to the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He wasn't absolving them of guilt or the responsibility for crucifying him. Instead, Jesus was applying his own teaching about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. He was asking the Father to apply his sacrificial death to the guilty people so that they could be forgiven. Father, what I'm doing here, give this to them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 1 Timothy 1, Paul, Paul tells Timothy, listen, I praise God for the ministry he's given me because I was once a blasphemer, persecutor, violent man. I acted in ignorance and in unbelief. But the grace of God overflowed along with the faith and the love of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. No evidence. No evidence of Jesus' guilt anywhere to be found. 
How about evidence for the guilt of the rest of the people? Roman soldiers gambled over Jesus' clothes while he hung naked on the cross. They also mocked him and they, they offered him sour wine, not to ease his pain, but to actually prolong it. Jewish leaders scoffed at Jesus. Even one of the criminals on the, hanging on the cross next to him hurled insults at him. They all mocked Jesus, telling him to, to prove that he was the Messiah by saving himself. And the criminal who insulted him went further and said, save yourself and us. That guy's dying on the cross too. He's hanging there right next to him. He didn't want to die, but his plea for salvation was superficial because he didn't believe that Jesus actually had the power to do it. The other criminal had some things to say as well, but his words were different than everything else that we've heard up to this point. First, he rebuked the criminal who was, you're undergoing the same punishment as this man. You're about to die, and you will face your creator. It's likely that these two men were Jewish insurgents along with Barabbas. It's likely that Jesus' cross was Barabbas' cross. And that these men were in cahoots with Barabbas in the rebellion that had taken place in the city. They were just as guilty as Barabbas was, and they were getting what they deserved. And this criminal recognized that. Did you hear all the we in there when he was talking? We are getting what we deserve because of what we have done. We are guilty. This man is not. And he said the same thing that Pilate had been saying all along. This man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. But this criminal believed what nobody else did, that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah King. And his only recorded words to Jesus in verse 42 were both a confession of faith and a plea for mercy. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. When you come into your kingdom, you don't have to prove to me that you're the Messiah. I don't have to ask you because I already know the answer. And Jesus' response to his plea, it's not weep for yourself. It's not in the days to come, I will be seated on the right hand of God and you better watch out. It's truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The criminal on the cross is the only one in this story who saw Jesus' innocence and his own guilt. The only one. He knew that he was getting what he deserved and Jesus was getting what place Jesus deserve. And in that moment on the cross, a great exchange took place. Jesus took upon himself what the criminal deserved, his guilt, his shame, and his punishment. And Jesus gave the criminal what the criminal didn't deserve, Jesus' own innocence, his freedom from God's wrath, forgiveness for his sins, and eternal life in his kingdom. This is why we call it Good Friday. Because even though it was the day that the world's only truly innocent man was unjustly put to death, he willingly gave up his life so that guilty people could be set free. But that freedom only comes to those who freely confess their own guilt and plead for his mercy. Have you done that? 
Or are you just here tonight because that's the thing to do on Easter weekend? When you look at Christ on the cross, do you say, he deserved it, or do you say, I deserve that? When you compare yourself to Jesus, do you recognize his innocence and your guilt? If not, then I plead with you to listen to his own words of warning and the the words that the criminal gave in this passage. Jesus died on the cross, but he rose from the grave three days later. We know this. Now he's seated at the right hand of of, of God the Father, just like he said he would be. And he's ready to return and judge the living and the dead. And no one, no one will be able to run and hide. If you falsely accuse Jesus of wrongdoing, if you mock him, if you treat him with contempt, if you scoff at him and rebel against him in unbelief, then then you will be justly punished. And you will get what you deserve. But if you admit that you are the criminal, he will grant you that mercy. And you seek the mercy of the king, then he will grant you that mercy. And you will be with him forever in paradise. This is our joy as believers. That we no longer have to bear any guilt or shame for what we've done. That's why I was talking about when we were singing that we can sing freely. It's my fault. It's my fault because I don't have shame for that anymore. I'm not condemned for that anymore because Jesus has taken it in my place. Christians are a peculiar people. We can say we're guilty and get away with it. But Christ, Christ has taken my guilt. That's why I can get away with it. I'm not fooling anybody. I'm guilty. You're guilty. But as believers, we don't just proclaim our guilt. We proclaim our freedom. Christ has taken my guilt. He's given me his innocence. Even though I'm undeserving of it, he's welcomed me into his kingdom forever. We together can freely and honestly sing these words of an old hymn written by a man fittingly named Philip bliss. Love this. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. The more we remain in awe of what Jesus has, dis- has done to secure our pardon, the more we will be willing to pardon others when they've wronged us. At the beginning of this message, I said that chances are good that somebody somewhere knows you're guilty of something. Chances are also good that you know somebody somewhere who's guilty of something, probably because they've done that something to you. Does your heart toward them reflect Christ's heart toward you? Are you able to pray what he prayed? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That doesn't diminish the pain that they've caused you. It doesn't remove their responsibility from it. But it does mean, it doesn't mean 
that you pretend like it never happened. It doesn't mean that reconciliation will be easy, but even while they're in the act of sinning against you, do you want them to receive mercy instead of judgment? Your answer to that question will help you gauge how well you understand Jesus' heart for you. Jesus proved that forgiveness is costly. Costly. But he also proved he desires to forgive freely. As those who've been forgiven freely, we must make sure that we don't make others work to earn from us what we have freely received from Christ. Because we have been freely forgiven by Jesus for all of our sins, past, present, and future, we ought to be quick then to seek the forgiveness of others when we know that we've wronged them. Christ has removed our guilt and shame, so there's no shame in going to somebody and say, man, I messed up, I sinned against you. We've already been reconciled to the Father so we can seek reconciliation with one another. We don't need to fear condemnation from others because the one true judge, the one who sits on the seat, removed it. The one who could condemn us, what did he do? He expunged our record for good. Every one of us is a criminal whether we own up to that reality or not, but only those who confess their own guilt and trust in Christ as their substitute are able to share in Christ's innocence. And by sharing in his innocence, we share in his kingdom. So don't cover up your guilt or shift the blame for it onto someone else. Don't keep a record of wrongs against someone else. Instead, let's freely celebrate the great exchange of guilt and innocence that took place at the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's declare the good news of Good Friday that the king, who clearly did nothing to deserve death, died in the place of us, who clearly did everything to deserve death. Why? So that we could be with him in paradise. Hallelujah. What a savior indeed. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for giving us your son. Undeserved. Lord, we, we to even come to you in prayer, we cannot do that without him. We thank you that you have freely given us everything in Christ. You have freed us from everything in Christ. And that as your children, we can freely speak of our guilt without any shame because we are no longer condemned. All for Christ's glory. May he be magnified. In his name we pray. Amen.